HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. It is a rainy Thursday at 1 o'clock, and you are tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in lovely Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are on the line with Anthony Butler, Executive Director of St. John's Bread and Life. Anthony, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you, Erin. So great to have you on. I know you're in transit, so thanks for taking the time out to come back to the station. Um, Uh. I'd rather be having lunch at Roberta's than sitting in the airport. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of a juxtaposition, huh? So um, I would love to just kind of start out with getting a brief o- overview. I know that uh, Bread and Life has a lot of different programs, and that you guys work basically to alleviate hunger and poverty in, in Brooklyn and Queens, but maybe you can just give us a sense of the scope of, of your services and then who a little bit about kind of who's using you guys and how. Sure. Um, Bed and Life, we're located in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, and we're one of the largest emergency food providers in New York City. Last year, we did over half a million meals to hungry New Yorkers and served about 23,000 folks. Um, We provide food, both hot food um, and uh, food pantry that folks can take home. We have a mobile soup kitchen that goes to six different communities in Brooklyn and Queens. We also have a significant... um, uh, social services to help people with issues of poverty. Uh, folks can apply for their food stamps on site. They can apply for Medicaid on site. We have free immigration help. Um, we have uh, right now going on a tax program that's free for any families under 50000 and any individuals under 18000 free tax prep four days a week. Um, we have legal services on site. We help folks navigate to procure um, various identification documents they might need um, and uh, various other referrals for mental health, uh, substance abuse, and housing issues. You sound like the one-stop shopping for, for a lot of your clients. Do. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, you are on the Farm Report, so, of course, we kind of want to take a focus on, on, on food and, and that aspect right. of, of what you guys do. So I wanted to tuck into a little bit about 
procurement. And so I know you guys are offering food in kind of a multitude of ways, both by serving meals uh, daily on site, and then you have the, the mobile units, and then you also do a food pantry. So can you talk a little bit about how food comes in, like what are the sources that food comes into uh, Bread and Life from? The sources of our food initially, um, the financial sources are private donations, um, kind of classic food donations and food drives and um, government money that helps pay for food. Um, and uh, so those, those are our sources of income. In terms of who we procure from, one of the things we're doing now, um, because we believe that the, um, the only, probably the best um, and most robust uh, group would be able to respond to the issues of hunger is the food community. Um, and particularly in Brooklyn, with it's it's a very strong community. And to that, we're uh, dramatically increasing our procurement from um, purveyors of uh, New York State pro- uh, products, uh, both farmers and kind of value-added uh, purveyors too. So, when uh, you're looking, let's say you're the I'm the chef at at the the main kitchen there, and I'm sitting mm-hmm. down to schedule my meals for the next week or the next month. Right. Kind of, how are those decisions being shaped? I mean, be, do you guys have to follow certain regulations with regards to nutritional content, or is there access to particular food items that you like? You know, get a lot of a yep. certain types of things that you work in, or. Um, I, exactly. I mean, we have nutritional guidelines we have to follow because, uh, as the listeners may or may not be aware, um, uh, Bed-Stuy has one of the highest rates of uh, childhood obesity, um, diabetes, and hypertension, and is, has one of the least accesses to fresh produce. So we're definitely a nutritional component um, that involves our procurement. We also uh, realistically have to procure stuff that's affordable. Um, and adjust our menus to that. We also feel a very strong obligation because we are publicly supported to place those those resources that we receive, those monies we receive, back into the community. And um, so we're looking um, at uh, kind of long-term procurement processes with New York State farmers and New York State value-added uh, folks. So um, uh, just to give you an example, our Christmas program, which served over uh, 2,000 uh, families, um, provided a Christmas meal and toys for 2,000 families. We spent approximately $65,000 um, all on New York State um, uh, products. And what do you think are some, I mean, why is that not just kind of the norm? Um, like, what are some of the barriers to, to making those types of purchases? Um, barriers would probably be several. I mean, one is just kind of the historicity of how you've done things all the time. Um, and traditionally, food pantries... Uh, kind of were, uh, they had to receive whatever people gave them. And traditionally it was, you know, someone went to the key food or the local supermarket and bought some pasta and tuna and gave it, and then it was given out again, which did not have the nutritional impact, nor did it really address the poverty. Um, that coupled with, um, like a lot of folks know, it's much easier to order from a large food purveyor, uh, a Cisco or a Driscoll or, or, or one of those, and not to disparage that, but it's much easier just to go online, place your order in, and it comes. Um, uh, coupled with that, um, some of our government contracts historically had um, were basically lines of credit that um, encouraged us or forced us. We had to work through those large uh, food dis- uh, distribution agencies or distribution companies. Um, but now, um, and I think part of the thing is, too, there's a much more, as opposed to 10 years ago, a much more robust kind of New York State farm economy. Um, and you can get the quantity and the quality you need. Um, they deliver regularly to New York. There's, there's much less logistical uh, barriers to that. 
So I want to touch a little bit on on some of the on one of the things that you just brought up as far as being encouraged or cajoled or you know to to, to work with particular purveyors. What can you expand on that a little bit? I mean, do, does that mean you would get a list of people that you could buy from, or you had like a, a like a credit that you could use up and? It was traditionally a kind of line of credit. It's like a giant debit card, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the funding agency would do, would do a, a good process of, of, of choosing a large purveyor and then limit the items with a great emphasis on nutrition. Um, you could only order X items. It was, it was a rather large list. It could be hundreds of items. Um, and, um, and because sometimes these were significant grants because they were shared, we weren't the only ones receiving HIPNAP monies. Um, there, may, there could have been like $3 million worth of HIPNAP money shared through 30 different agencies, um, and all those agencies had to buy through one purveyor. So you got, you got a very good price. Okay. So that was the, um, so, um, and so, which is for all of us, a good price is a good thing. Yeah, of course. Um, and, um, uh, so, so that I think historically is why it was, and it was easier. It's, um, emergency food providers historically don't have huge levels of staffing or frequently staffed by volunteers. So, stuff that lo- makes it logistically easier is always beneficial to them. Um, can you? What is it? Hipnap. Hipnap. I'm sorry. It's hunger, nutrition, um, and prevention program. Um, it's state monies. Um, uh, total of New York State last year awarded uh, just around thirty million dollars for foods. Um, that are going to communities that have significant areas of hunger in the state. Um, it's been a very effective program. Um, almost uh, all the money goes directly to food. Very little to overhead. And um, how does I mean how do you, how does one determine that a, a neighborhood or an area is or isn't hungry? Um, it's done uh, historically by the uh, U.S. Census uh, poverty stats. Um, it's done by the um, uh, New York State Department of Health. Um, it's done by the reporting of um, the nonprofit food providers who are there. We have to report regularly on how many folks we're serving, what the levels of need are, um, and then it's calculated for that. With, um, because right now in New York City, one in five folks are using emergency food, and one in four children are going to a food pantry or a soup kitchen. So even in New York City, that's about 1.6 million folks. Wow. It's a lot of a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And have you guys seen a growth in the need for your services kind of post-2008? Yes, yes. I mean, it, during the when, the, when the, um, everything happened in 2008, we had like a 32% increase. And we've been on, running on average now, subsequently, at 7 to 10% increase each year. And is, is that increase in the need for your service? I mean, is it is it is the funding for that being met, or I mean, is no. it that you ha- you like you have an increase in need for service and a decrease in funding, and you're kind yeah, of stuck uh, in the middle trying to balance? It's been very um, in, in the, the world of food um, historically. The, 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 the fund, excuse me, the level of funding has been low, um, and like I said, I mentioned that thirty million dollars that has not grown for five years, even though both the, the need has grown um, and also obviously the cost of food has grown as we've seen. Um, and then the rest, even with my agency, um, we, we have to raise about 90% of our money privately. Um, it's not uh, government funding. 90, so 90%, you said. 90%, yeah, nine zero, ninety percent 90% of the, we uh, run approximately about uh, just slightly under a $3 million a year budget, and 90% of that has to be raised privately between individuals and foundations. And the organization has been around for how long? 
We've uh, it'll be 30 years this year, St. John's Bread and Life. Um, it started like a lot of emergency food providers in 1982, um, which was a direct result of the, um, the Reagan cuts in the emergency food system. Um, an interesting anecdote that in um, the late 70s, 79, and 80 in New York City, there were between 12 and 16 emergency food providers. Um, by 1984, there were 1,600. Wow. So, so a huge um, direct result of the cuts in food stamps um, uh, during the Reagan administration and yeah. that, that whole safety net. So, I mean, I think that is something that's a little hard for people to wrap their heads around this idea um, that people in America essentially can, can can be hungry or can be faced with like having to make choices between purchasing food and, uh, you know, paying for their uh, electric bill or clothing or, you know, kind of the myriad of, of costs that go um, with, you know, supporting yourself and where i mean as far as like where is there uh, where's the balance between services that are provided by uh the government and services that are picked up by by nonprofits like yourself i mean are you guys essentially the safety net for the safety net i, I mean in i mean the, the the major safety net for hunger in this country is the food stamp program now known as the snap program that is the major the major program um uh so, but then after that, it is us because food stamps um, doesn't make it. Um, there's gonna, I don't know if you remember about a year ago, the food bank did a food stamp challenge, mm-hmm. and if you receive food stamps as a single individual, you have to live on four dollars and fifty cents a day. Now, try to do that. You can't buy a beer, Roberta's for that. I don't. Think. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but that is that's the average. If you were living on food stamps as a, as a single adult. Um, it was four. Uh, your food stamps equals four dollars and fifty cents a day, and, um, and it grows for a family. It's about twelve dollars a day for a family, which is very, very difficult to do. A family of four. Sure. So, so, so that safety net is not. It's got a lot of holes in it. And then you have the emergency food providers, which traditionally um, were one of the larger ones. Most of them still traditionally are small churches and synagogues and mosques. Um, who um, uh, just distribute food. So it's a significant problem in our country. It's running around 46 million Americans suffer from hunger. Interesting statistic that just came out that there's been a 25% increase in the number of folks with four-year degrees, four-year college degrees, who are availing themselves of food pantries and soup kitchens. Wow. That should be the, I mean, those should be the folks who getting a job is not a big problem. Right. So... So are there any, I mean, requirements for use of your services? I mean, I, I think one of the other weird things that kind of happens around, um, you know, in particular in New York with, the, you know, SNAP recipients needing to be fingerprinted, you know, there's right. this whole idea or this kind of talk around people, you know, taking advantage of or misusing the services as though mm-hmm. there's some kind of covert activity where people are trying to, you know, take advantage of the system. Um, can you just respond a little bit to that mentality, sure. maybe where that's coming from and where that fits within the reality of what you see kind of day to day? First of all, it doesn't fit into the reality. I mean, there was an interesting study that just came out two days ago by the Pew Institute that um, read a comprehensive study that showed the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to cheat on things. I heard that, uh, yeah. yeah. It's an interesting thing. And um, you, you mentioned the, the, image, uh, the, uh, the idea that we finger New York City finger images. We are the only, us and Arizona, New York City and Arizona are the only places that finger image. Um, and it's very interesting to criminalize a benefit because that's essentially what you're doing. Um, I tell the story of my wife who's got a, a severe disability. 
she um, applied for disability. Um, disability called her. She did the entire interview on the phone, uh, finished it up online. Um, they said, we'll be in touch with you, ma'am, in about 60 days. In 59 days, money ended up in our bank account. We had no idea what it was. And then we got a letter the second day, the day following, saying, we've been approved for disability. These are your rates and things like that. And I thought, this is significantly more money than food stamps done in a very dignified way. And it's interesting that we use a, a device um, for anti-fraud for folks who are poor, but we don't, don't use the same device for folks who have means. Um, and so I think there is, there's, historically in our country, there's been that kind of what Charles Dickens said, the bitter bread of charity, um, that you, you better be grateful for what we're giving you. Um, um, there's also a notion, too, that the more hurdles you place, administrative hurdles you place on a benefit, the less folks will use it. Well, I think, yeah, that's I, one of the things that's always striking to me is somehow there's this seems to be this working assumption that if you're low income, you have lots of time to and also just like a lot of know-how and mobility to get from mm-hmm. place to place and to understand yep. kind of a series of complex forms or or, you know, bureaucracy essentially exactly. to muddle through to get your four dollars and fifty cents a day worth of of um you know allotted food stamps or or whatever the service may be well definitely um some troubling stuff that we're going to tuck into a little bit more but we're going to take a real quick break The following program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery. Cane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.cane5.com. All right, we are back. You're tuned into the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Anthony Butler, Executive Director of St. John's Bread and Life. So before the break, we were talking about some of the, uh, you know, state or I guess city imposed barriers to, to access to, you know, food stamps in particular. But at Bread and Life, if, if someone needs to make use of your services, can you tell us how that works um, for our services, there um, are, are the services we deliver. There are no barriers. If they want to come for hot food in our soup kitchen, our mobile soup kitchen, they simply show up. Um, for our, our food pantry program, um, what we do is we register them. We ask for, we ask for sort of believable proof of address, and we ask for proof of family size, because our food pantry. Um, uh, one of the kind of unique things we do is we use a point system, and people actually order the food pantry off a touchscreen. Um, we do that for two reasons. One, to continue to acclimate people to technology, um, because it's a skill we obviously need to, to navigate this world. And secondly, um, it allows us to drive certain foods to folks with certain needs. Um, I'll give you an example. If folks choose our food pantry um, and they have hypertension, they can see our stuff with low sodium. Um, if they have uh, an obesity issue or, or something like that, they can see the low-fat things. We also, if you will, price because people receive a certain amount of points and every item's worth a point. We price uh, more nutritious food cheaper to encourage people to use that. 
Excellent. And as far as food coming, uh, kind of going back to food coming into the program, oh, yes. are there are there particular things that um, you tend to get from more of a regional source? I mean, do you do you have like a relationship with New York State farmers for you know apples or other kind of staple New York crops, or how, how does some of that work when you're looking to increase? kind of purchasing in that direction? We do, we do have direct relationships with New York State far, farmers. Um, uh, some farmers in the Black Dirt region, the Gavlarki Farms, uh, work with uh, uh, Windflower Farms up in Hoosick Falls. We're working with some folks in Miller's Crossing. Um, so definitely, and what we're able to do is particularly, and we're also starting a new uh, uh, initiative to work with uh, the Kingston co-packers um, to receive uh, New York State Farm for, uh, food that's been flash frozen, um, which uh, allows us to store it a little longer. Um, and the farmers are very good at giving us a good price, um, contacting us if there's an overage and they have extra product that they can't use or can't sell. Um, and what we do is we adjust our menus to that. In addition to that, one of the things we do, because part of the issue of eating nutritious food is that folks don't know how to use it. Um, so we have regular cooking classes with chefs from the community. Um, we uh, give folks recipes. We sort of advertise um, what, what the new the new produce is and how to use it, uh, and particularly teach people to cook these things so the kids will eat them because that's, that's one of the huge barriers. If you're a parent, you know that. To get your kids kids to eat vegetables is a tough thing. Yeah, one of the other things I feel like you hear about often is kind of getting food to you that's in a in a form that makes it easier for you to use. So that somehow there's like this mid-level need in New York State in particular for services that will do things like the flash freezing or kind of, you know, peeling the onions or breaking down the potatoes. I mean, is there a particular, like if you had a magic wand, is there one food item or one thing that you're like, man, if we could only... Like that would be awesome. I, it's more of the, the the ability to those things that can be flash frozen that tend to spoil quickly. The, the root vegetables, the onions and potatoes, you can handle those because you don't have to move on as quickly. The squashes in the fall. Um, but um, we're very excited about some of our work around flash frozen produce and things like that. So it gives us some time to adjust menus because the reality is, logistically, if we get something in and we don't have enough storage, we may have to switch the menu to use that uh, more rapidly. Can you give us some examples of, of, of where that's happened? I mean, have you ever had someone just kind of show up with a semi-load of lettuce? Or I think, have, I think yes. you shared a, a story for me when I visited about lobster. I would love to kind of share um, that with our listeners. We did. We did. I don't know if it's a good thing when I ask for donations to tell people we served lobster one day. But, <laughs> we received, um, but just to give you an example, we received a call from City Harvest. Um, and City Harvest is a large, one of the largest food rescue organizations in New York City. And they um, told us that they had 1,200 lobsters because some fish um, wholesaler, um, the story was he did not pay his taxes, and the marshals padlocked his building, and he didn't want the lobsters to die, so he donated them, and we had to shift the menu. We had to do a very quick cooking class because it was, a, a if you will, a foreign food. Folks weren't used to having lobsters. Sure, you were, um, you're not cooking a lot of lobster down there. No, so. we don't. Know, so it's probably, it may never happen again, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was an interesting day. And uh, luckily we had plenty of butter, too, so it was good for the, <laughs> the butter sauce. But we also received, on, um, uh, last year, we, a farmer contacted us who um, he had uh, planned to sell um, huge amounts of produce to um, Walmart. 
and something happened with the contract, um, and Walmart didn't need all of that. So he had grown it. They had paid him. He didn't want to destroy it. So he was delivering tractor-trailer loads um, of uh, uh, fall vegetables, uh, mostly squashes and stuff. So we worked um, both to change our menus to use those, to address them in the food pantry and do cooking demonstrations so people would take them. And we also partner with other emergency food providers in the city. So if we get too many things, we will redistribute it to them to, um, so that food doesn't waste or is not wasted. And is that pretty true? I mean, just generally that, you know, I, I, that food organizations are, are more collaborative than competitive Competitive. I mean, yes. I, I mean, I'm sure there's probably two a difference on the service end versus the fundraising end, but exactly. <laughs> yes, very much so. I mean, we partner because um, we're all um, serving uh, the same folks or same type of folks. Um, and if we have resources, I mean, it's it's really it would be a shame to or a scandal to 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 waste the resources. So yes, from the service end, very much so. And we're developing new partnerships with um, some of the smaller emergency food providers in Brooklyn who can't. Um, um, provide the, the kind of extra services, the human services we do, so that they can refer people to us. We're placing workers at their sites, um, and um, so we can better partner. Because our whole goal goal is both to prevent the worsening of poverty and to move people out of poverty. Um, so I'm curious. I mean, what what's you know? There's kind of this drive around Thanksgiving and Christmas every year where people are like, "Oh, I'm going to go volunteer at the soup kitchen and, and kind of do my part to alleviate hunger." And and I don't want to disparage that inclination, but I I also realize and recognize that people are hungry and that you have a need for um, you know do- both donations of time and money year round. So maybe you could kind of share some of um, some of the different ways that people can get involved, and, and if there are particular times of the year or types of services that you're particularly in need of, yeah. um, it would be um, great to know that. I do appreciate the opportunity. You're very right. I tell people that there's folks hungry January 1st, too. Um, and we are in need um, of regular volunteers. Right now we are doing our tax program, so we're in need of evening and weekend volunteers. Um, we are also obviously in need of donations. Um, we are in need of people who have professional skills who want. We have the capacity that if you have, say, legal services or some type of professional skill, we can set you up with a desk and you can donate those. And all the information can be found at www.breadandlife.org. That's B-R-E-A-D-A-N-D-L-I-F-E.org. Um, both how to help us financially, help us with volunteer um, opportunities, and to find out more about us. Awesome. And if I'm a farmer, do I get in contact with you if I have, yes. you know? My, my contact information is on the website. Yes, definitely. Uh, we want to increase um, um, the farm participation. We also, um, one of the things we're working with farmers, too, is that we will kind of promote them. Um, that it'll be, you know, um, Smith's Farm Day in the soup kitchen or something like that. Um, because I find I find the farm community and the food community very much gets this, too. They recognize um, the importance of feeding and the importance of preventing and lessening hunger. So it's a very exciting thing. And I would just, you know, this is maybe a, a, a little bit out of, out of purview, but, you know, there has been a... You know, there is a lot of talk around neighborhoods that have high rates of hunger and in areas where there's essentially have become food deserts. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, aside from the services that you're providing, what do you think are, are maybe some of the solutions for, for getting rid of these food deserts and, and areas that we should be kind of thinking about or putting our like political muscle behind if anything comes to mind? 
I, I think some of the, the political muscle um, to support the farm bill. Um, that's in front of Congress right now because that directly ties to uh, food stamps. Um, just to give the listeners an idea, last year New York City lost $750 million of eligible food stamps. That's three-quarters of a billion dollars that would have come in to New York State, bodegas, supermarkets, farmers, and the like. Um, the encouragement of farmers markets is another one. Um, the ability that all farmers markets can take the EBT, which are the, the food stamp cards, um, the food stamp swipe cards, um, uh, and I think, and also in, in New York City, there's um, Speaker Quinn's doing some significant initiatives um, around um, making um, Hunts Point and our, our kind of produce distribution system much more friendly to New York State farmers, which will allow more stuff to come in. Awesome. And then I was just wondering, um, I, I was sad to miss the No Food, No Farms rally this year for the first time, but I know you were up there as a speaker. Yes. So maybe could you share a couple of highlights from the day for us? Um, I was at the No Farms, No Food rally, which is, is there to support uh, New York State farmers and land uh, conservation. It's a very exciting day. Robert Morgenthau was there. Um, one of the exciting things was meeting Lieutenant Governor Lieutenant Governor Duffy, um, uh, former mayor of Rochester. And, uh, folks, Rochester has the um, the honor of winning the, the, the nation's best um, uh, farmer's market. Oh, wow. And uh, he was uh, sharing with me, uh, it's a huge farmer's market, and it's become so successful that it has raised the land values around the farmer's market in Rochester. They're building condominiums and nice homes. Um, So it's had uh, not just the effect of bringing good food in, but um, also bringing um, kind of economic development. Um, And it was very interesting to talk with the farmers and and meet the farmers um, and and understand that this is an issue that's only going to be solved, this hunger issue is only going to be solved by all of us coming together and working on it. It's not simply a a poverty issue. It's not simply feeling sorry for ourselves. It's not simply feeling sorry for the folks we serve. But rather what I learned up at the... um, up at the uh, No Farms, No Food rally, is that by all of us coming together, bringing both the food resources and the monetary resources to bear, we can significantly impact hunger in New York State. Awesome. Great. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy travel schedule oh, thank you. <laughs> um, to, to come on and, and share a little bit about the work at St. John's Bread and Life. Um, definitely check out the website if uh, you're interested in getting involved. I, I know I will be stopping by as you guys are right around the corner from me. And tune in next week at 1 o'clock for another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter Twitter. for up-to-date news and information. Thanks Thanks for listening. listening.